0: Hello, everyone. This is The Daily Occupation. My name's Anika. Let's get started. I wanted to have an episode on splinting, and I wanted to do it separate from the upper extremity conditions just because that would be one very long episode. <laughs> so I'm going to talk about splints for this episode. So if you haven't talked about the upper extremity conditions or listened to the episode, I would highly recommend listening to it either before or after this one. Um, I don't know if there is an order that is that flows better. I guess it kind of depends on your preference, but I think that having them and listening to them um, around the same time would be helpful. Especially because a lot of the times during the study process, we will, um, I recommend kind of going by topic. So if you're doing upper extremity, I would listen to both of the episodes um, to kind of have a nice flow and overall view of not just conditions, but also of splints and their purpose and everything like that. As always, I have a PDF on my website under the resources tabs. So just go to www. Um, thedailyoccupation.wixsite.com slash podcast slash resources. That'll take you right there. I have a little bit um, of some pictures on the table to provide with some visuals for what different splints look like. So hopefully that is helpful with understanding um, the diagnoses that they are usually paired with and also their purpose all right let's get started so what's the purpose of splints so the purpose of splints is to provide um, rest so we want to rest the extremity after it has endured a injury it has there's some syndrome happening a condition or there was surgery that was performed so to rest the extremity to to allow healing We're also going to use splints to prevent deformities and contractures. So thinking about arthritis and those certain deformities, there are splints to help with those. Increasing joint range of motion. Um, So an example could be some more dynamic splints that provide some sort of component that allows in passive range of motion or um, beginning range of motion. Protecting the bones, joints, and soft tissues involved in the upper extremity that were um, either injured or are at risk um, for more um, damage. We've got increasing functional use, especially if there are some deformities or contractures, and, of course, decreasing pain. So those are kind of the overall purposes of splints we've got different ways that you can do for evaluation. So normally you're going to include um, your charter medical report reviews, you're gonna do some interview and observe the client, you're gonna do some palpation, occupational assessments, um, and then you're gonna also assess pain, edema, sensation, range of motion, muscle strength, coordination, functional use, and also if there's any psychosocial issues because of course with any sort of injury There's always something that can happen psychosocially because of the impact it has on our daily lives and our occupations. Also, you need to consider the work status of the client, their motivation, social support, and reimbursement source. There's a lot of different materials um, that you can Um, use. I'm not going to go in depth about those materials. I don't think that that's something that is as important for the exam. But there's some things to consider when we're doing fabrication of the splint. So we need to think about the materials we use. We need to think about the patterns um, and how we're going to draw them. Are we going to do them on a paper towel? I usually um, recommend drawing on a paper towel and outlining the body part. And then you're going to um, have a little bit of, you're going to usually go about two-thirds the width of the extremity and half the circumference of the bone and marking the bony landmarks, extending half an inch to two-thirds an inch past the fingertips and thumbs. That is what I learned and also that is what is referenced in the AOTA PDF um, in case that is helpful for you in remembering how to draw for patterns. Again, I don't think that is as important, so I'm not going to stress it as much. We also need to think about molding the splint to the client. So we need to make sure that the splint can conform to the body part. And um, we need to think of how to um, apply any reinforcement, um, if necessary, padding, rounding the corners, flaring the edges, um, having appropriately um, placed straps and rounding the edges of the straps. And anything else like that that needs adjustments to ensure that it fits and does not cause any sort of irritation. Um, so, we also are in charge of instructing the client um, in the wear and care of the splint. The information for, um, like, to provide our information in case anything um, occurs that can be problematic, such as irritation of the um, certain um parts of the hand especially for example um, at the wrist we've got some bony prominences that can stick out and cause for some rubbing Um, and we also want to monitor the client's response to splint wear to ensure that they will do it correctly and will not have any sort of problem in their wear. So we have some different types of splints. We've got serial static splint. A serial static splint means that it has no moving parts. And it's mostly used just to immobilize a joint or a part of an extremity. Then we have serial progressive splint. A static splint is um, usually what it is. However, it's using um, casting material that's remodeled to address changes in joint motion. And then dynamic splint is going to include what they call a resilient component, which is usually elastic, a rubber, a band, or a spring that um, the individual will move. So it's designed to increase um, passive range of motion or augment active range of motion. So what I like to do to remember these is serial static, of course, static um, is not moving or changing. Serial progressive, it's progressing, um, so it's being remodeled. It's You're progressing the um, cast or the splint as joints are starting to move. And then dynamic, of course, dynamic moving. It has movable parts. Okay, so... The first splint I'm going to talk about is the resting hand splint. This is one of the more common splints that we see. This is um, mostly going to position the wrist in 20 to 30 degrees extension. Your MCPs are going to be slightly flexed at 45 to 60 degrees. Your IPs are going to be at 15 to 30 degrees flexion or slight flexion. And your thumb's going to be abducted and in a little bit of opposition. So this is kind of a more comfortable position in the sense of your MCPs and IPs, and your wrist is slightly extended. This is going to mostly be used for rheumatoid arthritis, detuptrins, it's a really hard one to say, (laughs) Um, CRPS or complex regional pain syndrome, crush trauma, and burns. Um, The purpose is really um, to place the hand in a functional position. Um, It's going to use the rest structures to protect structures of the hand, and it can be either dorsal or volar. Next is the intrinsic plus splint that is also known as the safe position splint. This one is more commonly used in burns. I would say this one's used more often than the resting hand splint, but it also depends on the stages and where they're at in their healing. Um, But intrinsic plus, think of burns. Um, so this, the wrist is going to be placed in 20 to 30 degrees extension. The MCT, MCPs are going to be fairly flexed at 70 to 90 degrees. The MCPs are going to be in straight extension. And then um, the thumb is going to be in palmar abduction. So this is really just used to maintain the length of the collateral ligaments. So this is just to try and ensure that contractures um, won't occur and keeping everything nice and long in the sense of ligaments. Now we have a flail arm splint. So A flail arm splint is not something that you see as commonly when you think about a splint. A lot of times you're thinking of on the wrist and the hand, but a flail arm splint is, um, I have a picture on it on my PDF, but what it is is it really um, is used for brachial plexus injuries or for people who have a spinal cord injury that ranges from C5 to T1 to assist in um, supporting their upper extremity. So in C5, they um, are just beginning to um, get some control over their shoulder motion, but they can't lift it. And of course, in brachial plexus, they could have what you call flail arm, and they are unable to lift their arm. So this is going to strap around their shoulder, and then there's going to be a component that holds around on the proximal forearm to help with um, providing stability at the shoulder and the elbow for functional positioning of the hand. So they can still use their hand if needed but they're having that trouble with the shoulder and elbow positioning. Then we have a radial nerve splint. This is also called a Colditz splint. As you would think by the name, it is for radial nerve injuries. So when you think of the radial nerve injuries, we are going to mostly assist with the wrist motion and finger extension because with radial nerve injury we have wrist drop um, and have difficulty with extending our fingers. So as you can see from the picture, if you are able to look at the PDF, if not, I would look at it um, as soon as we can. There are some mechanisms to assist with finger extension. And this is really used for function. It's gonna help with extending and like extension and release, or so grasp and release of items and being able to do that when they are unable to do it all by themselves due to the radial nerve injury. Then we have an opponent's splint. This is also called a thumb spica. There are, um, so this one that I have here is a forearm-based thumb spica that I have in the picture. It is different than the one I have coming up next. Um, So for a forearm-based thumb spica, it's usually used for median nerve injury. However, you can use um, forearm-based thumb spicas um, like you would for some hand-based thumb spicas or thumb splints. Um, so some of the ones that I have listed on the next row for the hand-based can also be used by a forearm, but it's a little bit at not as necessary. But with the median nerve injury, it is because the wrist is more involved. Therefore, we want the wrist and some of the forearm held together, um, in that position. So what we're going to do is it's really just going to hold the thumb in opposition during functional activities, because with median nerve injury, you can have some um, difficulty with your wrist and thumb motion. Now we have the hand-based thumb splint or a thumb spica. This is gonna be very similar to the thumb spica except it's only hand-based so it doesn't go down into the forearm. We wanna make sure just like with the forearm-based is that we allow for movement of all the fingers. So with the creases in the hand, it doesn't go too high up because we want them to be able to use their fingers. This is usually used for skier's thumb, CMC arthritis, and de Quervins. So there's different things that the splint can do depending on the condition that it is being used for. So for skier's thumb, it's going to protect the ulnar collateral ligament of the MCP joint of the thumb until it heals. Because with skier's thumb, um, thinking about the ski poles, that's why they. Um, it's kind of that type of injury where it really gets the collateral, ul- ulnar collateral ligament um, of the MCP joint of the thumb, and it really irritates it from all that pressure that they have, let's say, on those ski poles. So this is really going to help immobilize it to ensure that it can heal. With CMC arthritis, you're going to place the CMC joint of the thumb at a, re- at a resting position until the inflammation decreases. So again, this um, with CMC arthritis, It's just like arthritis in other parts of your body, except it's at the CMC joint or the base of the thumb. And so the inflammation is causing a lot of pain, and this is going to help cause um, the thumb to be placed in a immobilized position to assist with um, the healing process. And lastly, we have dequervance. Dequervance, remember, is where we've got a lot of pain at the base of the thumb due to um, microtraumas or repetitive movements. And this is just going to place the first dorsal compartment at rest, so similar to CMC arthritis, but for a different reason to allow for that inflammation and healing. And so we are not able to engage in those aggravating motions that um, would come about with dequervance. So that would be ulnar deviation and thumb abduction. So putting it in that position of slight opposition um, and abduction will help with it to rest and heal. Next, we have a tenodesis splint. I included this one because I thought um, it it was something that's very important because with someone who has a spinal cord injury, starting at C6 to C7, normally C6, we think tenodesis, C6, tenodesis. I think it kind of rhymes. I'm not the best poet, but I think it is um, a way to kind of remember C6 and tenodesis. And this is just a way to get a visual of what a splint would look like to help improve that finger flexion and opposition with that wrist extension to improve the grasp and release. Um, A lot of times there are manual things that we can do with manually moving the wrist into extension and then flexing the fingers to help with that. But also there are splints that we can use as well. We have ulnar drift splint. Of course, this is then for ulnar drift, um, as you can see on the picture. Um, And if not, there are going to be um, an area where it goes around each of the fingers to try and keep them in alignment to um, not allow them to ulnar deviate. So this is going to help with decreasing pain, providing stability, and of course, realigning the MCP joints of digits 2 through 5 for the index to pinky finger. So that is a fairly, um, you know, that one I think makes a lot of sense if you can see a picture of it and obviously know what ulnar drift is I think that that one is a pretty simple one to remember Um, anti-claw splint I talked about this one in the upper extremity conditions and so this gives you a visual here of what it kind of looks like so it's going to go around um, the fourth and fifth digits and then around the palm to um, address claw hand and what it's going to do is it's going to help position the MCPs in flexion because in claw hand they're in hyper extension. So it's going to place them in flexion to prevent the clawing of the fourth and fifth digits. We've got dorsal protection splints. These are commonly used for flexor tendon injuries because, as you know, with flexor tendon injuries, that's on the palm of the hand. Therefore, we wouldn't want the volar surface um, based splint because that could aggravate the sutures. So, we have it dorsally and it will help keep the fingers in a flexed position to allow the flexor tendons um, to repair as they are um, after they've been surgically repaired so then they do not rupture we have, they call these silver rings. So silver rings, there's also some different names for them. And I will say those in just a second. But silver rings is kind of a general term for some more finger splint and finger-based deformities. So we've got for boutonniere, and we've got swan neck deformities. So for boutonniere, it would be preventing the PIP flexion. And for swan neck, it would be preventing the PIP hyperextension. So they're going um, to pretty much just ensure that these movements can't occur so then there can try and be some healing with those deformities. So, so for silver rings, you can get a handful of different types and some different names of the specifics of different types of finger splints. We've got PIP extension splints. So if you think PIP extension with boutonniere, we have hyperflexion of the PIP joint. So that could be for boutonniere. Um, We've got PIP flexion splints. We have PIP hyperextension block splints. That would be for swan neck because there's hyperextension of the PIP joint in swan neck. So of course the hyperextension block splint would be for that. There's actually some others as well. We've got a DIP extension splint. So this one's gonna be formed to go around the DIP joint instead of the PIP. And that's gonna be more for your mallet finger. And we've also got DIP extension or flexion splints. Okay, I have one more on my PDF that I have. And this is first, this is spasticity splint or known as cone splint. So they're different, but they both work toward um, preventing spasticity or and preventing joint contractures. So someone who has a lot of spasticity Um, What we have is we have a couple different ways that we can address that um, depending on the areas that are most spastic. So for a cone splint, that is really supposed to help with ensuring that the fourth and fifth digits don't get so contracted and so tight in flexion that they won't be able to be released. So a lot of times when, um, we have spasticity in our hand, our fourth and fifth digits really like to tighten up. So that cone splint can help with ensuring that they can stay, Um, you know, they will still be in a flexed position, but not nearly as extreme if they did not have that cone splint. And then we have um, a more standard spasticity splints where you can spread the fingers and try and keep them in certain positions, whether that be mostly an extension to prevent that flexion contracture um, usually can be due to a lot of different types of things, but I like to think about stroke patients who have severe spasticity. Um, You could also think of some people with spinal cord injuries who have um, severe spasticity and some like flexor synergy is going on after stroke. So those can be helpful in ensuring that their hands um, can stay in a um, extended position and don't get stuck in that flexed, flexed fist. Okay, that is what I have for you. I'm just going to say one more thing about splints that I do not have on my PDF, but I think it's important to know um, just some considerations depending on the populations that you're gonna be working with. And this can come up in the exam, but also I think that this is just important in practice because not everyone is going to go into orthotics and not everyone's going to be working with people um, with adults or geriatric populations with strokes, TBIs, um, spinal cord injuries, arthritis, things like that. So with pediatrics, there's some things to consider. So you wanna obviously consider their age, their environment. You wanna make the splint appealing to the child. So if you have patterns or colored materials that could be helpful in them to um, engage in the wear schedule. We also want to limit the fit time by using a cold pack to let the splint, set the splint more quickly so the child doesn't have to sit for that whole period of getting it fitted to them. And using a soft splint may be better than a custom, um, especially depending on the thermoplastic material you have available, just because of comfort and knowing that children grow a lot. With geriatric populations, we're also going to consider their age and their environment, but we also want to look at their other existing medical issues, if they have any cognitive or perceptual deficits, low vision, hearing impairments. Those can really come into play in understanding and being educated on the splint, its purpose, the wear schedule. We need to know about their pain perception, understanding the thinning of their skin and adipose tissue decreasing, which can impact more um, skin integrity problems, any medication side effects that they have using a stockinette under the splint because of their thinning skin, patting the splint, using soft straps, and also labeling the splint can be helpful if they are having a little bit of difficulty in understanding or remembering due to cognition, perceptual deficits as well. All right, that is all that I have for you on splints. Um, I think splints is something that's very interesting and can be very helpful in understanding, especially because there's probably going to be a time in your career, no matter where you are, where a splint may be needed. And you may not be the one fabricating it or um, anything like that, but you may be recommending one or referring them to someone who is a specialist. So it's just something good to know. And of course, it's on the exam. So hopefully this is helpful. I, again, would recommend looking at the PDF for some visuals. And also looking at other resources. I did, um, for some of the um, portions, did reference the AOTA PDF on um, upper extremity um, to talk to you about a couple areas, just because I thought it was very well said and summarized. So that's another good resource to use. And again, as always, please be sure to go on Facebook and join the Daily Occupation group um, to know when more podcasts are being, uh, or more podcast episodes are being um, published, any more resources that I have, and also if you have any questions or want to engage anyone in conversations. Alrighty, that's it. Thanks a lot for listening. I'm Anika, and this is the Daily Occupation.